Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. I'm super excited about the guest that we have today. You know, he's a serial entrepreneur. He's built several companies, and I think we're going to be very inspired with his story. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Howard Lerman. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So originally, you were from Virginia. So uh, give us a little of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? Well, you know, I sort of grew up, I would suggest a little bit like a Stranger Things child in the Hawkins, Indiana type suburb of Virginia. Uh, I rode my bike around in the 80s a lot. And, um, you know, in as a kid, I think I was a, a, a very mediocre baseball player, but I loved to do it. But more importantly, I was uh, an opera singer as a kid growing up. And so you can imagine how cool it looked when your mom would come to pick you up to take you from baseball practice to opera practice. I got really used to being punched around a lot. I hear you. I hear you. And now I know that, uh, you know, when you were in school, you know, you got into computers like very early on. Yeah. So how was that, you know, first encounter, you know, and, and, and where you were like, my God, this is so cool. You know, I, I grew up at the perfect time because I had a childhood in the 80s where there were no phones and no iPads and no internet and no computer. And around 1994, 93, that's when things really started to kind of become real. And, you know, that was right when I was becoming a teenager, you know, I was 13, 14 years old during those years. And I just remember the excitement of when I was 13, figuring out how to run what was called the bulletin board system. Uh, And this was predated the internet, you would use a phone to call into somebody else's kind of computer and you could talk to people and post games and sort of do other things there. So I got really kind of acquainted and comfortable with connectivity and doing all that kind of stuff at a really early age. That that uh, And then the luckiest thing in my life was getting into a, a, a math and science high school called Thomas Jefferson High School for Science and Technology. It's a STEM school uh, science, technology, engineering, and math, where I met other people that were like me. So what did you do there when it came to uh, grabbing the phone line and, and creating the chatting system? Well, what was that? Yeah, you know, they used to have this software called Wildcat BBS. This was before the internet existed. What you would do is you would use the phones to dial your computer and have a phone line dial somebody else's computer. So it was like peer-to-peer. And you could host a few people at the same time if you had multiple phone lines. So, you know, we're all used to today just connecting a gajillion people to a call. This was one person could call in. They needed a dedicated phone line to do it. But I would host people. I'd host games uh, from my computer. This was all when I was 13, 14. And that's, you know, the type of stuff that other people were, were experimenting with, like Sean Parker, you know, as well. That's right. Yeah, Sean Parker. We used to do stuff with Sean Parker, you know, the Facebook, uh, former Facebook president. And I I got to know Sean when I was, I grew up with, you know, in the same neighborhood as him. Um, So there was a lot of kind of fun stuff that would would happen when we were kids. Um, And, but, you know, but the cool thing was it wasn't mainstream yet. And it was a, it was a strange dynamic because we knew something that our parents didn't. 
it's an interesting dynamic when you're an expert at any programming or any sort of technical skill and really nobody else knows how to do it yet. And it was a time in which, yeah, 93, 94, 95, the internet was growing very fast and was there, but it was the kind of thing that people would write about on Time Magazine, but the mass was not mainstream at all. People didn't know how to use it. And uh, and I think, you know, when you're whenever you're involved in a formulative, your formulative ages with something, it makes you just kind of gets into your brain and, and, and it's there with you your whole life. It becomes a part of who you are. As much as I hate to admit it, I think it's part of who I am, the internet. Now, obviously, as you were saying, the internet, you know, became part of who you are. So you had it clear. So why did you go to Duke to study history out of all things? Well, I, you know, history was a great major and don't tell the Duke professors this, but it was the easiest by far. I was a terrible student. I, I, pretty much never went to class. And I found now, you know, with ChatGPT, history is done forever. <laughs> it's hard to imagine how people are going to not write history papers using AI. Um, but at the time, I was able to cobble together enough papers to just pass barely while I could pursue other interests. So there was a, definitely one thing there talking about other interests that they involved sending people tips anonymously. What was that? You know, I started my first company at Duke and it was, I was 20 when we started it. This was back in, you know, 99 or 2000. It was called justatip.com. It let you send your friends anonymous tips telling them about their annoying problems. It was really funny. It was tongue in cheek. It was a joke, but you would get an email saying, hey, you know, sorry, you have, someone has asked just to anonymously inform you that you have bad body odor. Or someone has asked us to anonymously inform you that your toupee is obvious. We had all these pre-canned kind of tips. This was a, at a time when you could sort of have a site like that go viral via email. And it did go viral. And it ended up reaching millions and millions of people. John Stewart sent one on The Daily Show, uh, which caused it to just absolutely explode. And this, again, was in, you know, 23 years ago. But it was for, for us, we ended up selling the company, you know, in, in a matter of a year, it was really a good first taste into the world of business because we had a quick win. Uh, and, and I guess also a good first day taste at what it looks like, you know, at, um, you know, at building, scaling and, and exiting. I mean, the full right. cycle of a business, I guess, what kind of visibility did that give you? Well, at the time, you don't know. You just think, you know, when you're 19 and 20 and you sell your company for a few hundred thousand dollars, you think, you know, that's just how it always is. It wasn't like I was looking at myself from the outside in thinking that, wow, you know, how lucky am I to be going through this experience right now to have had such a positive experience with selling to a great company, meeting some great people that ended up being mentors later on. Frankly, it was very lucky. And maybe luck is a theme that you're going to hear from me over and over and over again, because I do, I do think that, you know, I've just, I've had certain lucky things happen, which has made us go. But, you know, at the time you didn't realize how lucky that was and how unusual it was, but it did happen. And, um, the other thing you learn is how little a couple hundred thousand, a few hundred thousand dollars is after you pay taxes and you're, you know, 20, you feel like you're rich for a second and then it's time to do something else. And as they say, luck is preparation meets opportunity. So good stuff. Now, you know, in your case, you know, you saw the, um, the full cycle of a business. Uh, but rather than, and obviously with that crazy traffic that you guys, you know, were able to experience with uh, this company. But, you know, what you did after this is, is interesting, you know, which is, you know, the next business was really a consulting firm. So 
a consulting firm, you know, is not that repeatable and scalable, right? As you know, what you maybe had experienced before. So why the consulting side of things? You know, what happened, and we think about this a lot, why we went down this route, 9-11 happened. You, you have to think back to that time in the United States. And, you know, we just sold our first company. And when I say we, I mean, my co-founders, Tom Dixon and Sean McIsaac, who I still work with every day to this very day, including through Exton at Rome. And then, you know, the Twin Towers went down and we were on the East Coast. We were in, you know, the DC area. And it just, I don't know why we did this, but we just felt like it was the patriotic thing to do to, you know, use our consulting, our, our technical abilities to sell consulting services. And many of the people that we served were government agencies or sub, you know, contractors of government agencies serving, ultimately serving the government as the end. Uh, and that, you know, is a twist of fate that I, I think about a lot. And we ended up having a good outcome there. I wonder what would happen if we didn't do that. I mean, selling, you know, a company for 7 million bucks is uh, not part of an outcome. How old were you? 24. My God. I mean, do you remember what was the first thing that you did with all that money so young? I think I bought a security called Auction Rate Securities, uh, which ended up being an illiquid cash substitute that, thank goodness, Citibank made us whole on. Uh, you know, I, I was pretty determined to keep going, pretty much. That's amazing. So, so here you go now, you know, from uh, the consulting side of things to you know, now getting back on track with the building something that is repeatable and scalable. Now, yep. in this case, you know, one thing led to the next. You know, you got started with Gym Ticket. And ultimately, Gym Ticket, you know, was like the immediate, you know, uh, kind of like a sequence uh, of events or, or perhaps what led to creating what ended up being Yext, which a massive success. So, uh, yes. so walk us through what was that journey like from starting with this company and, and how do you all of a sudden, you know, like see yourself, you know, with Yext? I think it's important to think of Yext kind of in two phases. The first phase was our media model phase. The second phase was our SaaS model phase. In the first phase, which started with gymticket.com, I had this idea to make a hotels.com for health clubs. You know, it didn't exist. This was 2006. So, you know, and what would be the business model for that? Well, you know, hotel sells the booking. Maybe we can sell leads to the gyms. That was the idea. I called the head of the, the trade organization for gyms, this guy, Rick Caro. This place was called Ursa. He partnered up with us. He was probably in his early 60s. I was, you know, 25, 26. We just got going and he would help us find, get access to the gyms and we would essentially find leads on the internet and then send them to the gyms. And that got to about 2,000 gyms and we realized that, you know, when we got to a couple million of revenue that it didn't scale. It didn't scale to like, you know, much more. And so we were faced with the choice. Do you go vertically or horizontally? Could you go deeper selling more to gyms or do you try to do the same thing, you know, more peanut butter to different verticals? And it turned out that uh, we, we, we chose the, the horizontal approach. So we started doing the same thing. We built a site called localvets.com and repeated that playbook and then did the same thing for chiropractors. And then we did this over and over and over again and got to about 20 different verticals and about $20 million of recurring, not sorry, non-recurring media revenue because we were paid for performance by small businesses. And we had a whole team of, you know, college kids right out of college, 
cold calling small businesses, selling leads. This was, you know, right when the internet was really becoming mainstream and SMBs were stopped stopping, you know, getting leads from the yellow pages because nobody was looking in print yellow pages. They were all looking on Google and Google Maps and so on. And so we were able to offer a really compelling value prop, but then that business hit a wall. And so then what we did was we, this is the crazy thing we did. We sold that business, the original business to IAC, Interactive Corp. And we incubated an entirely new company in the same cap table. It's a little complicated, but we we actually did it in reverse order. We we started this new company and then spun the old company out, the original company out, sold it to IAC, used that capital to incubate power listings. And here's how power listings worked. You know, it, it became obvious that the unit of local advertising and location-based stuff was going to be listings. Uh, you know, that is a listing and used to be in the yellow pages, and now your digital listing is in Google, it's in Apple, it's in Siri, it's all of these different places. And so we built this cloud listing idea where you could upload, you know, a company could upload its information into Yext and we'd sync it across a hundred different places that people looked to find a small business. And that worked so well that it turned out that big companies started signing up for it. And companies like Wall Street banks and Fortune 50 companies, Morgan Stanley, Farmers Insurance, and they all wanted the same service that Yext offered, but for their many thousands of branch locations, or McDonald's has 12,000 store locations. And you can imagine the utility for them at scale of being able to upload all their location data and have it sync across every mapping service on the planet from one spot. And that ended up just being a smack, an absolute smash hit. Uh, and that and that business is what Yext does today and is the leading provider of location data and listings to the biggest and most important mapping services in the world so that you find the right McDonald's address or hours of operation when you go to look it up online. And I mean, obviously, incredible success. But I guess, hey, you know, for for Yext, what were the early days like? You know, what was that process of really putting that uh, team of of A players? The very early days of Yext were characterized by just brute force, I would suggest. I mean, literally, we would, you know, I would bowl over marketing managers at health clubs around the country and get them to sign up for gym ticket. Uh, you know, I would, we were just like heat-seeking missiles that were hustling like crazy. Um, we had way more of a sales approach than we had a good product, I will say that. We had a great value prop pay only per leads, but we didn't really make, we didn't invest in R&D to make something super defensible and super awesome. We just were essentially arbitraging media and then building this network of gems. Um, so in that, in that case too, I mean, you know, for, for this company, it was like your real experience at the super hyper growth, like really raising money too. Yeah. How did you guys go about raising money? How much capital did you raise prior to the IPO? Well, look, I mean, I like to joke now I've, been on all sides of this coin here and I've gone back to the first stage of the journey but look I've raised seed I've raised an A a B a C a D a growth an IPO a secondary a follow on venture I mean you name it I've been there at Yext I think we if you were to total it up we probably did 3 in the A and then this was back before you know an A round was now now an A round is 20 million but back then an A round was 3 million so we did, you know, three million between A and B, and then we did a, a, a twenty-five million dollar C, a fifty million dollar D, and then another twenty-five before we went public. 
Uh, and then when you go public, you put about 125 million on the balance sheet. We did. We did a follow-on offering to add another 125 or so. So uh, you know, we raised probably 200, 250. Somewhere in that range, two twenty-five million. And when it came to really picking the right investors, you know, for the right reasons, you know, how was that process like? I mean, obviously at this point, you know, you were quite a seasoned guy. You know, even though very young, you know, you had a, a few exits already, you know, under your belt. Yeah. So what was that process of making sure that you had the right people for the right reasons? You know, I think first off, I mean, everything has changed so much. Like if you look at the ecosystem today in 2023 versus what it was, you know, the venture ecosystem was like back when I first got to know it in 2007, 2008, 2009, it was totally different. Now you have all these solo capitalists that are out there that can throw half million, million, $2 million checks back, you know, and again, I sound like I'm like a really old person here, but back when I was doing this for the first time 20 years ago, it, there were really like, I don't know, 20 firms kind of that would do these and they were all, they all kind of knew each other and they were all part of the same thing on Sand Hill Road in Silicon Valley. 3000 Sand Hill Road specifically is where Sequoia is and IVP is and Sutter Hill is on Page Mail Road. Great. I mean, you have these Benchmark and Excel. I mean, there just wasn't too many of them and you would hit them all. And, uh, and you know, the, for us, the process... The process was actually, and maybe we're just, again, lucky here to use that word, but we never really had to chase the money. The money kind of always, we did pretty, we would prefer to put up the results, Alejandro, and and then have people come to us as opposed to like talk a big game and then, you know, raise the money and then have to deliver. I've, I've always, which by the way, I think a lot of companies today are in trouble for having done that you know, for having raised money at super sky high valuations that are fundamentally unsustainable. And by the way, the VCs are equally as guilty in making that happen. Because if you're a first time entrepreneur, and someone shows up, and you have 3 million of ARR, and they're willing to invest in your company at 300 million and put in 50 million with no terms, you'd be an idiot to say no. So uh, that's a there's there are two parts of that problem that have happened there. Um, but the, the game is completely different today than it was uh, back back in 2000 and, you know, 2007, 2008, just a completely different ballgame. You have all these different capital uh, sources, different types of funds, classes of funds, and just an entire, they all have a totally different strategy than they did before too. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid-cap type of um, a cycle. So 
Again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And I guess uh, for you guys, you know, what a, what an absolutely amazing experience with Yext. I mean, at what point do you realize that, you know, it's time to to go public? Because, I mean, it's a whole different ballgame where you are operating privately and you can move much faster. You don't have the disclosure, the reporting, you know, type of stuff. You know, at what point do you realize, hey, maybe maybe we got we to gotta go public here? Well, you know, what we did was we brought in our CFO, Steve Cakebread, who was the CFO of Salesforce and was CFO of Pandora. So he had taken two companies before Yex Public, super experienced, knew Wall Street, knew how to handle the banks, knew how to handle investor relations, do all the forecasting, put in, you know, real processes to become a real company. I mean, going public forces you to grow up. You 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 have to have, you know, super concentrated, op, you know, uh, financials. You have to be really good at forecasting. You, you know, it 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 forces you to behave in a in a much more disciplined way than when you're private. Now that comes with bad and good sides, right? On the good side, you become more predictable and you're better. And the bad side, you you might be more focused on quarterly earnings instead of long term success. If you're not if you're not careful about that, and people can get mad at R and D, which doesn't have a very you know short term payoff. So you know, I'd say in 2014 when we hired Steve, that was kind of the catalyst for getting getting out and going public, which we did in 2017. It takes takes a couple of years to get ready. How nerve how how nerve wracking was saying, you know, going on the jet, you know, with the investment bankers, you know, pitching people, doing the whole pony show. I mean, how how was that experience too? Well, you know, the IPO roadshow is really a, a unique thing. The banks, their product is they put you on a private jet for two weeks, and the, the, in return, you get the privilege of flying around from city to city in the United States, where each each day you do, and I kid you not, it's starting at 8 a.m. There's a breakfast and there's out, you know, there's a meeting every hour until lunch and then you do a lunch meeting and then there's a meeting every hour until dinner and you do a dinner meeting and then you get in the plane and fly to the next city. And so you end up doing probably 10 pitches a day uh, with the bank that accompanies you over a two-week period. So you meet, I'm guessing, maybe between 90, you know, 80 to 100 investors over that time period. And you just say the same thing over and over again. You you have your your sort of dog and pony show and your pitch. And uh, by the end of the show, you sort of get good at it. Uh, and you've been, I guess, uh, rehearsing with your comrades. And in my case, I had uh, Steve with me and Jim Steele, who was our president and head of sales. And uh, we were completing each other's sentences. It was uh, a trip, to say the least. And it culminates in a in a crazy special day when you when you when you wake up and it's time to IPO that day. And now that uh, you're public, you know it's a different ballgame. I guess uh, for you as the experience, what was what 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 difference you know that you encounter from you know operating Yext uh, yeah. privately to then all of a sudden you know you're the CEO of a public company. Well, there, there's a lot of differences. The, the first difference, and I think this is the most important one, is that when you meet with investors, you have a new set of investors. When you're private, your investors are all on your team. They're venture investors that they're going for, depending on when they came in, in valuation, between a three and 100x outcome. And when you're public, the people that are buying, that you're meeting with, they may not be on your team because they're allowed to short you. So you don't know if you're talking to someone who is betting for you 
betting against you. And that is a really fundamental shift. That's the first thing. Second thing is when you have venture investors, they're in it for at least three, four, 10 years, in years. When you're public, people can be in and out within a day. So you could be talking to traders, not investors. And you just have to learn to pretty much cut through the, the noise to provide a signal that, that these folks can use uh, to do it. The other thing is that everything you do is, is scrutinized. You know, you're talking to analysts that uh, are modeling your business and have to give them clues. Um, and you have to be very accurate and very careful with what you say. You can't say anything that's not correct. So in your case, I mean, you've also had the opportunity of, of investing in other, in other companies too, as an investor, you know, especially after, you know, Yext, you know, obviously you had the liquidity. So I guess uh, in terms of investing in other companies, what do you typically have experience as patterns between the people that succeed from the people that fail? First off, I, I need to just start this off by saying I'm a terrible investor. I am, you know, you, you are much better in your audience. So don't take anything I say as investing advice, not for a legal reason, but for actual practical reason, which is that I'm just not very good at it. Right. Um, because I am a operator, Alejandro. I, I love to just get my hands on things and design things and go from zero to one, as opposed to, you know, helping someone, you know, letting someone else do it. So I, I actually have learned this about myself so much so that I try to not invest in a lot of things because I just would be annoying to the founder. And I don't, I don't want to be too annoying because I, you know, I see things that they can do. And I, and I don't like it if investors that are in, you know, my companies are telling me what to do. You know, that's just annoying. So uh, I'm not, I'm not very good at this, but it's, it really, I think comes down to the intersection of two things, which would be the, the, how good the founder is and how good the product or market fit is. I mean, that's, it's really that simple. And I guess the third thing is a, is a, is a lens on that, which is the valuation. Are you going to make money or not? You know, and the first thing, I'm pretty good at judging the first thing. And the second thing, the third thing, there's professionals that are way smarter than me that, that can judge that. So in your case, I mean, what a run, 15 years, you know, really yeah. pushing Yext. Yep. You know, I'm, that's, I mean, 15 years in the startup world, I mean, in dog years. I mean, that's like crazy, crazy amount of time, crazy amount of battles, you know, ups and downs. Yeah. You know, after, you know, like bringing the company to such heights, what really, you know, brought you to the decision of, you know, maybe there's something else that I should be doing here? At Yext, over my time as, as our founder and CEO, I always had to figure out how to grow. And the way that you run a five-person company is totally different than a 20-person company. And that's totally different than a 50-person company and so on and so forth. And you have to keep making adjustments to play a different game at each stage and do a different job. And Yex got under my leadership to about 15, about 1,500 people, somewhere in that range. I, at some point stopped being the best person to figure out how to lead a global company at scale. And over, by the way, as we grew in our first stages, I was not shy or hesitant to replace people that were not growing correctly. You have to do it. It's part of the journey. When someone hits a wall or gets, you know, 
kind of gets to their point of competence, but the company needs more, you have no choice but to replace them. It is the moral thing to do for both the company and for them. And that person at some point about two years ago became me. And so it became time to replace myself. And so we did. So what happened next? Well, I, you know, it was a discussion with the board and, you know, I think we were struggling in certain ways and I was trying and, you know, I was swinging everything I could possibly swing in every possible direction. And it just became time for there to be a new person for me to pass the torch to. And uh, fortunately on our board, we had someone that was awesome and willing. I don't think we would have you know, I think we sort of, again, luck is a recurring theme here. And uh, I think we kind of lucked out with with having Michael both present, up to date and available so that, you know, when we started to make this discussion, we, we decided that he'd be the right guy. And uh, I don't look back at all and think that it was a mistake or I don't miss it at all. I, I feel like I fully gave and lived every possible moment that I could have and did everything I could to make the company great. And part of that final thing was finding my successor. Every company has to outgrow its founder. Yeah. Now, now in your case, you know, I mean, 15 years is a long time. So what was that discovery process for you to really understand what will be the next chapter in your journey? Well, you know, I was I, like everybody else. We went to Zoom and Slack during the pandemic and I was setting up a Zoom call one day. And, you know, when you're running a big company, I was doing it with about 100 people and I forgot to add someone to the calendar invite. And so at that moment, I was like, shit, if you forget to add someone to a calendar invite in a distributed company, they don't exist. They're a non-person. So I had this flash of insight. Let's make a bird's eye view of all the people in the company, you know, meeting you can see everyone. It's kind of like, if you know, Harry Potter, like a Marauder's map for the company. And that spark of insight gave me the idea for Rome, which I am now leading today. So at what point do you, obviously you got the idea there, but at what point, obviously, you know, I'm sure that you looked into this and you had that process for really figuring out whether it was going to be worthwhile or not. So at what point are you like, okay, I'm going to go for this one? You know, everyone's advice after a 15 and a half year journey where you know we we've achieved immodest financial success was don't jump into anything take your time take some time off take it 6 months off a year off go on a journey of self discovery enjoy this break and like a total knucklehead i completely ignored that advice and literally started rome the next day wow so I guess, hey, for the people that are listening, you know, to really get it, what ended up being Rome and how do you guys make money? Rome is a cloud headquarters for distributed teams. And just to take a step back, you know, I was telling you about the Zoom call where, you know, the person got lost in the ether. We made this sort of bird's eye view or had this idea for a bird's eye view. And, you know, right now in the world, there's all this debate about the future of work and whether the future of work is going to be in the office or hybrid or remote or something else or some combination. And frankly, we at Rome think it's entirely the wrong question um, because 100% of companies that are successful become distributed. Uh, I'll give you an example. 
Yext had offices from Berlin to Beijing. The best salespeople are always with customers. The best product managers are always with customers and engineers. And the best engineers get to work and can work productively from wherever they want. And so, you know, during the pandemic, companies really adopted Zoom to help them stay connected. And Zoom and Teams, Microsoft Teams. And Zoom did a great job. They were the first company to really solve the video conferencing technology problem. Remember, video conferencing before Zoom was awful. And Zoom really helped us stay connected, but it didn't bring people together in the same way as if they were in the same real office. And furthermore, we've all kind of adapted our workflow around Zoom now. And so if you look at, you know, a calendar, it's all full of meetings. People have, you know, these long, big, boring meetings all day with too many people back to back. The meetings are too long. Things that used to take two people five minutes are being scheduled for Zoom calls next week with eight people. Uh, there's people that go to an office that drive to an office every day and they, they sit on back to back to back Zoom calls after they've driven to the office. And so, you know, what separates, I think what's clear is that video conferencing technology is not a replacement for an office. And bureaucracy has, uh, you know, grown to the point where productivity is stalling in these distributed teams. And so, you know, what makes video conferencing different than, uh, you know, in this new distributed work world from a real office is a concept I call synchronous presence. In a real office, you can walk in. And you get a feeling for who's there and you can see who's present and you can, uh, you know, tap someone on the shoulder if inspiration strikes to have a quick conversation. And, and that in a, in a remote or distributed world is all lost. It's lost in a world. It's all missing in a world from video conferencing. And so what we need to get back to is a world in which the workflow is one where distributed companies can be distributed, but still work together as if they were in one headquarters. And that's our mission at Rome, to bring a whole company together in a cloud headquarters from anywhere, as if people were working together in real life. And we just started it, uh, like I said, uh, we started building it a little while ago, and we only made it in our private beta two months ago, and it has exploded. Um, and we're just really trying to hang on to support the customers we have while we implement the features that they demand. That's amazing. I mean, absolutely, you know, very much needed. And it sounds like you guys have hit a nerve there. Now, in your case, you know, obviously, you know, at this point you had done very well for yourself, you know, especially, you know, given the prior ventures. Why did you take money from outside investors here? Well, you know, I thought a lot about that. I talked to Mark Benioff's people about that for a while. I, I did, by the way, this wasn't publicly reported, but I also did put in 12 million of my own money into the company. And I thought about funding the whole thing. And the reason I didn't was because there's a Chinese proverb, old Chinese proverb, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. And one of the things that was fortunate is that given that I've been on the other side here and I'm coming back around, I kind of got to pick the people I wanted to go on with. And so in our cap table, we've got Jules from IVP who, you know, I worked with at Yex for 12 years and 55, five, five incredible entrepreneurs that have been my friends for a decade. And so to be able to 
call on guys like that when you need them and be able to get introductions or help or product feedback, you know, when you need it, you know, as opposed to just keeping it all for myself, I'm not trying to make something that I just, you know, that's like Howard's fun house that I own, you know, just for the sake of having a fun house. I'm trying to make, we're trying to make a, you know, a company and a company has multiple stakeholders and multiple people and lots of people involved. And so it just, you, you want to go, you want to go far here. And you want to do it with other people. I love that. Now, as you're thinking about going far and uh, also what the future holds here for Rome and, and for the team, you know, if you could go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of Rome is fully realized, what does that world look like? We want to build the default HQ for every company on the planet, big and small. And we want everyone to log, everyone, when, they, when they're ready to go to work, whether they're in the office or they're remote or they're somewhere else, they log on and they're in Rome and they see a visual representation of a company's headquarters. And they can see from a glance who's there. They can ad hoc tap people if they want to talk to them when inspiration strikes. And if they want to leave their company building, they can jump and visit another company and see that company's HQ. We have this big vision for building a way for every company to have an HQ. And today we have, you know, certain types of rooms, but we're, we intend to add, you know, all kinds of new rooms to, uh, to Rome. That's incredible. Now, we're talking here about the future. So let's take a look at the past and be able to reflect on it. You know, let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I'm able to bring you back in time, back in time to that moment that maybe you were still, you know, at Duke, you know, doing your first gig, you know, figuring things out, you know, building your first business. Imagine if you had the opportunity of having a chat with that younger Howard and being able to give that younger Howard one piece of advice before launching that first business. What would that be and why, given what you know now? I would say focus, make sure you focus on your existing customers more than new customer acquisition. I know that's um, that's not like insightful and Buddha and, you know, Mr. Miyagi or whatever, or Yoda. I, I really just was always in such a rush to grow the top line as fast as possible when I was, you know, starting early days at Yax and everything else. And you want to make sure you have the product right before you sell something people don't need. And net retention is the most important metric in any business. But I hope I hope I can get a thousand percent net retention. I mean, imagine, imagine. That would be absolutely unbelievable. Now, for the people that are listening, Howard, that would love to reach out and say hi. What is the best way for them to do so? Well, you can do you can find me on Twitter at Howard. I'm on OG Twitter handle. Uh, you can find me, by the way, Rome is at Rome. If you want to check out Rome and you can always email me h at ro.am. Amazing. Well, hey, Howard, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us today. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. 
You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.